Hey everyone, this is Brian from the Tennis IQ Podcast. Josh and I hope that you are enjoying the content and discussions that we put out week after week. If you'd like to support the podcast and help us to continue to produce quality episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash podcast slash membership. Currently, we have three tiers of support, the fan level at $3 per month, the supporter level at $7 per month, and the champion level at $20 per month. Benefits of joining the Tennis IQ podcast community include episode transcripts, participation in book club discussions, and access to monthly masterclasses with me and Josh. For more on these benefits of support, head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash podcast slash membership. Thank you so much. And now, on to the show. Welcome to the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Josh Berger. And I'm Brian Lomax. And today, Josh and I are going to talk about a motor learning theory called quiet eye theory and and try to relate that uh, to tennis and the psychological aspects of tennis. Um, Quiet eye theory was first developed by Dr. Joan Vickers. Uh, So she's a Canadian sports scientist who specializes in kinesiology and, and motor learning. And what quiet eye theory is about, or where one of the first experiments done on it, was in golf. And the theory was that would golfers, say in a putting exercise, would golfers who watch the ball, the back of the ball, a little bit longer... Um, have more accuracy, have better putting performance? And this was something that they noticed was a difference between expert golfers and more, um, you know, maybe next level down or intermediate golfers. And by tracking their eye movements, they noticed that expert golfers tend to look at the back of the ball longer and also through the stroke. So once they've made contact with the ball, actually their head doesn't move to look at the ball quite yet. It remains fixed on that spot. So um, there have been similar, um, shall we say, experiments or studies in other sports with with quiet eye theory and and how it relates to performance. And so for today's episode, Josh and I reviewed uh, three different papers, um, two of them on uh, tennis with respect to some quiet eye principles and and one with um, on golf. And um, each of these, I think, has some great things for us to think about with respect to how we could apply this information as tennis players, um, how it could help our focus, how it could help us perform better uh, in competition um, and in certain aspects, and maybe even help us to recognize what's happening in a match or really in a point uh, much earlier. So, um, Josh, before we jump into any you know specifics here with respect to applying Quiet Eye or, or summarizing a little bit some of these articles, any preliminary thoughts? No, I mean I think I think a way that I have thought about this idea for a little while, um, and you know I think a way that they can help people conceptualize it a little bit is actually to to look at Roger Federer. And, and even photos of Roger Federer, 
better and see how after he's made contact with the ball and for whoever's watching on video, they may have a better, better sense of what I'm talking about. But after he has made contact with the ball, his head and his eyes are still fixed on where the ball, where the contact took place. So he has already completed his swing or continued his swing. The ball is already being sent over to the other side of the court, but his head and his eyes are still fixed on where the the contact took place. So I think, you know, as as we talk a little bit more about this idea and and then how to apply it, I think it's, it's, it's important that people have that visual in terms of what is this exactly? What does this look like? in tennis um and how can we you know really focus on the 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 different pieces in terms of what happens before contact what happens during contact and what happens after contact and you know can somebody really get to the point where they're able to fix their gaze um so that they can you know have utilize that that uh, quiet eye um by yeah by by having their headset you know, beforehand, their head and their eyes set beforehand, keeping it through contact and even, you know, maintaining that that uh, focus past contact as well. And I think Federer is a great example. And, you know, I think a lot of people can imagine him that I've seen posters of of him, you know, where his head is still uh, sort of fixed in that same area. Or I think people can can picture it um, or if not, you know, certainly Google Images has plenty as well. But uh, yeah, no, I think as we get started, I think it's just important that people have a clear idea of really what this looks like in practice. Yeah, and that that's a great example, and and that it's one phase of the quiet eye piece that we'll we'll talk about, which is being in that contact zone. Um, perhaps what we could do, Josh, is is go through first the the golf article because it actually had some really interesting findings there that we can then apply to tennis and and then the other two articles. So in this particular uh, study, there were uh, essentially two groups that ability-wise, in terms of putting performance, were the same. And they they tested them. They did a baseline to make sure that their relative uh, ability levels were the same. And then one group was uh, basically the control group, meaning that they just were themselves. And then the other group was trained on how to apply quiet eye um, as a motor skill or motor learning practice, right? So they were taught um, how to look at the back of the ball, how to do that longer, et cetera. And then they, after the quiet eye training, they had them both groups come back and do a putting performance again. And there were significant differences, especially in, um, it was interesting, I think in the misses, the misses of the quiet eye group were much closer to the hole than the misses of the control group. So I think that there were some, uh, both groups were still really good at making putts, but the quiet eye group was much better at kind of gauging the distance to the hole. Um, and so their misses were, were far, far better. Um, also within this study, they tried to introduce um, a sense of pressure. And the way they recorded this is they had them do a baseline of that. And everybody's performance before the quiet eye training was was similarly bad, right? So they all kind of felt the pressure. And what they noticed after the quiet eye training was that the group that had been trained 
actually perform just as well as they normally would, and in some cases better than that. And I think that's a very interesting finding for us, Josh, because we, you know, we, we <clears throat> talk a lot about stress, anxiety, pressure in tennis, and and how do we mitigate that? Perhaps something like teaching players better ways of tracking or watching the ball um, could really facilitate a little bit more relaxation, a little bit more ease, a little bit more balance. Because I think of the you know, the whole theory is called quiet eye theory. Okay, so what's the opposite of that? Noisy eye theory? Or right, it's more about movement. And we're really trying to keep the eyes and the gaze more fixated in a place rather than having it going all over the place, right? And when it's going all over the place, I think I feel anybody who's played tennis has probably felt this sense of when you get nervous, you're picking your head up a lot, you're really anxious to see where the ball went. Maybe you look up even before you make contact. So I thought that was a really interesting part is that that quiet eye training actually helped people perform under pressure. Absolutely. And and as you said, that's, you know, one of the biggest, one, one of the most important things for tennis players, right? Most people have a tougher time performing at their, you know, to the, to the higher level of their capabilities under pressure. You know, one of the big reasons I think people will reach out to someone like, like either of us is that under pressure, their, their level drops or they have a tough time performing in matches compared to practice. And I think, you know, when it comes to, to pressure moments, having a plan and having some sort of resource or tool that you can go to such as this is, is really critical. I think if you don't have that, then it's very easy to be lost, very easy for your thoughts to start wandering. It's very easy for you to start thinking about what could happen, what might happen, what you're trying to avoid, things like that, rather than doing the action itself. Um, and I think what was interesting for me is really looking at how the um, quiet eye training took place. And they they really laid out um, five points, and, and I can read them, in terms of how they instructed golfers for, for putting um, to, to, to really ad- adopt these methods. So the first one is to assume your stance and align, and align the club so the gaze is on the back of the ball. After st- Number two, after setting up over the ball, after setting up over the ball, fix your gaze on the hole. Fixations toward the hole should be no more than five than three times. Number three, the final fixation should be a QE, quiet eye, on the back of the ball. The onset of the quiet eye should occur before the stroke begins and last for two to three seconds. And then number four and five is no no gaze should be directed toward uh, di- directed to the club head during the backswing or forswing. And, num- and number five is the quiet eye should remain on the green for 200 to 300 milliseconds after the club contacts the ball. But I think I think the parts one through three is most important in terms of um, setting your gaze on the back of the ball first, then fixing your gaze on the hole, and then back to the back of the ball and holding it on the back of the ball for that, you know, about two or three seconds. And I think you can actually see this sometimes with servers in tennis. Um, I can think about Federer as an example, but I can think of a number of 
ATP, WTA players, um, and, and really imagining their serve routine. And, and what it often will look like is a player is, you know, bouncing the ball, getting ready to serve, and they're focusing on on the ball or they're focusing on, you know, what is closest to them. And then they look up toward their opponent, make sure they're ready, maybe check their positioning, and then it's back to themselves and then looking up towards the ball to make contact with the ball for their serve. Um, so I think, you know, you can take these same instructions and really apply them to whatever you're doing, whether it's a serve, whether it's a return. One of the other articles that we looked at was about returners and, uh, you know, the what what made it different is with um with this this golf study there was an intervention so the intervention was them teaching this quiet eye technique to golfers on putting um for for tennis for the the two articles we looked at with tennis there wasn't an intervention they were more um analyzing you know one of and one they were analyzing uh professional players and one they were looking at some of the differences between um higher level players from a division one collegiate team and then um, lower level players from that same division one's club team. So really analyzing and looking at some of the differences between those players in terms of um, their eye gaze and that sort of thing. But I think, you know, that, that as we think about the, the applications of tennis, that you can really, you know, use this as a starting point in terms of, um, especially that that final piece in terms of really fixing your gaze on the ball and on you know and, and on the ball and then trying to keep it there, um, which you know and something like putting where the ball is obviously still, um, you know it's probably most co- comparable to to serve because it is control it is a little bit more controllable and you're not responding to the opponent's last shot like you are in in every other shot in tennis. Yeah, and, and the the part about the uh, the intervention, Josh, where they have you look at the hole, and then there's a caution no more than three times, because I think you know anybody who's watched golf or or plays golf, there may be times where you have a putt, and you tend to look at the hole and the ball, and at the hole and the ball, and you do it a number of times, and if you're doing it say more than three times, what does that say about your level of tension or pressure or anxiety in that moment? Right, you're probably going to have a difficult time then maintaining a quiet eye on the back of the ball if you keep checking. You know, in tennis, I don't know that we necessarily do that so much. Like we're picking our head up and looking at where we want to serve, and then do it again, and then do it again. But um, because I think sometimes when we do that, we might be giving away where we're looking. And, you know, a seasoned player might might see where you're looking on that. But um, the part about having a quiet eye during the serve, I think, is very interesting um, because I've tried this myself and I've, I've worked with some players on the court is to at the in the service motion when the ball has been tossed, I've asked players to really look at the bottom of the ball for a longer period of time. What often happens with tennis players is they'll they'll toss the ball up and then they may bring their head down, you know, in in anticipation of trying to pick up the ball where it's going, rather than and, and so when you bring your head down, obviously some things can break down in the surface motion. So one way to you know avoid that is to 
stare or, or look at the bottom of the ball longer through the contact that keeps everything up. And you generally will have better, you know, ball striking quality in that in that regard. So that's the closest thing we have to a putt. The ball is actually still moving, but hopefully if you get really good at a consistent toss, you can expect it to be in the same place most of the time. And, um, and so looking at the bottom of the ball can be, be very helpful in that regard. Um, the thing I like about the, the serve return study, Josh, like you said, it was more of um, an analysis of the difference <clears throat> between those groups. And um, the main difference was interesting because, um, and this, this will relate, I think, also back to our, the last article on gaze control, is that many of us are taught to watch the ball, to track the ball all the way from the opponent's side to your racket. And in some way, that's not necessarily exactly what we want or need to do. Um, especially if we think about the higher level where the ball is moving so fast, it's nearly impossible to track, you know, 125, 140 mile an hour serve from the contact point all the way to your racket. The, you know, the human eye and and brain are not able to process that whole thing. And, and so this study bore that out as well as the other article on, on really ground strokes and more focused on Federer and Nadal. Um, and so what's the difference? Where, where, what, was, what was different, say, about the elite players than the club players? And so we saw that with the elite players, they actually recognized and saw the ball earlier in its ball flight than the club players. And so what does that do? That gives them the ability to recognize where it's going to go and they can begin to move uh, in that direction. The same has been noticed in Major League Baseball, that good hitters, they're not seeing the ball all the way from the pitcher's hand to the bat. They see that beginning piece of the pitch, and because they're experienced, and they have, you know, their mind has these essentially good prediction models, they can predict fairly well where that ball is going to end up. Uh, because the decision to swing in baseball has to occur very, very early in that in that process. So there's no way they're may- being able to track and then decide. They're making that decision very, very early. And if you think about it in tennis, if you really begin to tune into the ball, say off the server's racket or off their from their ground strokes, sooner you can actually move sooner to that spot. And so I thought that was a really interesting finding from that. Um, and I think that gives us you know, certain things that we can work on, Josh, uh, while we're playing, while we're returning. Definitely. Definitely. No, I, and I think, um, yeah, trying to, well, while you're returning, if you can try to, yeah, not, not assume that you're going to be able to necessarily track the ball the entire time, especially on something like a first serve return, which maybe we could compare to a fastball or something like that. Um, but instead of that, can we try to, you know, watch the server and and really focus on our point of contact and really trying to watch the ball through contact? Um, and I think 
this sort of reinforces that sort of um of an of an instruction, right? Can watching the ball through contact. Um, rather than, you know, trying to watch the ball all the way through, which as we know isn't isn't necessarily possible. And they, and they talk about um how yeah, not just in tennis, but research has shown that um, you know, the the, the same is is true in baseball, table tennis, and cricket, how other studies have shown that neither elite or non-elite athletes can actually track the ball the entire way. So instead, can we focus on some of those, you know, some of those key points? And I think especially that that point of contact is is yeah, really where we want to be uh where we want to be focusing. Yeah. And so I think like if we look at say the return of serve by picking up that ball sooner and and i know when um i was um helping out with the bryant men's team and i may have mentioned this on a prior podcast but we had a conversation with the bryant university baseball coach who at the time um was someone who had major league experience as a player and so you can look at the pitcher-batter um, confrontation, shall we say, in, in, in baseball. Same as serving and receiving. And so what we were very curious about <clears throat> was what is a routine that a major league baseball hitter would go through, especially with their eyes? We wanted to understand that. And so... He used terminology of soft focus and hard focus. So we can maybe look at that as almost like um, maybe scanning for information and then, and then maybe zooming in on something. You know, that's some information that um, I know both Josh and I have read a book by Jackie Reardon called Mindset. And that's, those are some terms that she uses, that, which I think are really good. And so what he was saying was that, you know, when a, when a Major League Baseball uh, hitter steps into the, the, the batter's box, they, they gaze at their, they may gaze at something like their bat first and just have a soft gaze on that. They may also look out at the pitcher and really have a soft gaze They kind of maybe take in their body language. They may take in other aspects of what they're doing. But as the pitcher begins to go into their motion and the arm comes up and the hand becomes visible, then the batter gets a hard focus on the ball. And it's in that moment, right? And that's what in, in the article we've read on the, the tennis serve, they called it the quiet eye onset, right? That, that happens sooner at the elite level. So these major league baseball hitters are seeing it right out of the pitcher's hand as well as they can. And it's in those first few moments that based on their own prediction models, they're able to decide what to do next. Right? Um, and so what do we do with this in tennis? So we're really trying to do the same thing, that once the ball is tossed and it's made contact, we want to pick up that ball as soon as we can. And so we had the guys on the Bryant University team try this out. Because we wanted to improve essentially the quality of our returns as well as the execution percentage of the returns. And after just a few minutes of practice, guys were really getting the hang of this. 
They were picking up the ball very well. Um, they were actually moving. Even what we noticed is that when when a serve went in the net, the returner had already moved. Basically, by the, at the same time the ball hit the net, where previously that may have happened or may not have happened. Players may not have moved until it crossed the net. So what are we doing here? We're really we're picking that ball up sooner, which helps make us faster. Actually, we're moving there. We can be more balanced. Um, and then, of course, the, the next part of it in tennis is, okay, we're not going to track the whole flight. We know where it's going now. And based on your experience, you can probably begin to shift your gaze to the contact zone, the impact point. Um, and this is where maybe you, you mentioned this earlier, Josh, I think maybe we went before we began recording, maybe that's where a bounce hit could come in. Or watching, I, I like watching the spin of the ball, but I also like knowing like what my contact zone is or what my impact point is. And so we're really, we're not looking the entire way. We can just shift our gaze to that impact point and then keep it there throughout. Um, so we're kind of going from a, a scanning for information, zooming in on the ball, then coming to a different place, the impact zone, the impact point. And then keeping our head there and seeing maybe the spin of the ball um, or doing bounce hit or something like that. Um, and so we got a lot of um, improvement out of our returns by sort of learning the lesson of a major league baseball hitter and, and simply applying it to, to returning serves. And we, we found that very, very interesting. Um, and I've tried this, this personally and it's a very, very helpful way to um to return and, and and feel like you're a little bit more in control in that situation i think that that makes a lot of sense i i appreciate you, sh you sharing that by the way um yeah I, I think that using something i know you mentioned bounce hit and we were talking about it before um i think using something like bounce hit can be really helpful for a couple of different reasons. I think one of the big reasons is that it can help you try to track the ball as much as possible. Um, but it can also clear your mind. I think so many players are stuck thinking about so many different things as they're about to hit the ball. They're thinking about their technique and they're watching the opponent and they're thinking about where they want to hit the shot. And there is there, are their feet set properly and, and their follow through and all these different things. So instead of all that, can we just focus on really trying to track the ball as much as possible and say bounce and try to continue tracking it to the strings and say hit. Um, and yeah, I, I think that, and I've seen this firsthand using this, um, you know, with, with different levels of players um, from very beginner players up to, up to elite players um, seeing the impact of it and seeing, you know, I, I remember specific examples of using it with players that were, still getting a grasp of the sport and just watching how they would start playing a lot more consistently this way. Um, and that would also give them the instruction to remember this and that this is something that they could use during matches. I know it's something I've used during matches, especially if I'm having a tough time finding my rhythm, finding my game. I've, I've used it, you know, I've, I've, I've kept it in my pocket, so to speak, as a, as a tool I could use in those moments. So I think, yeah, what, what's nice about using something like that is it, is it, you know, without necessarily trying to 
fix your gaze on the ball. It, you're kind of doing that by watching it, by trying to time it and saying, you know, bounce and hit, you know, by trying to really focus on the timing, it kind of forces you to watch and track the ball and to, you know, hopefully fix your gaze through that point of contact. So I think, I think that's something that people can, can absolutely use, um, you know, on both on the practice court and during matches, you know, I would suggest probably using something like this or some, like some of the other things we're talking about using it first during practice. And I think that's really where you can see, Hey, this is, these are tools that can really help me uh, because first of all, I'm no longer thinking in the same way about all these other things I could be thinking of. And number two, I tend to make much better contact this way. I'm watching the ball, you know, really before, during, and th- and after that point of contact um, in a much better way. And wow, what do you know? I make much better contact that way. Yeah. The last article was, um, as you mentioned earlier, Josh, a um, kind of an analysis of, a, of elite level performers and, and guys like Federer. Um, do you want to give us your impressions of that or want to explain that article? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that some of my impressions were that, yeah, I mean, essentially they were analyzing, they were analyzing people like Federer, other, other, you know, elite professional players on their, um, on how much they, um, fix, fix their gaze on the, on the ball during these, during these key moments. Um, and I think, and I actually want to pull up this quote, they were saying that one of the, that there's more difference in terms of the, um, in terms of the stroke itself, rather than of this, rather than this aspect of things. Um, I, let me see if I can actually pull up the quote, but, um, but anyways, I, I think it was interesting because it showed that, that by and large, these players are using, you know, these sorts of skills and are, um, really focused on the ball in these critical times. Um, and I think, you know, it, it sort of echoes some of the ideas of the other study that, that compared more elite to, to, to less elite players, you know, that, that being at the college level, this being at the professional level. Um, but I think, you know, what, what's interesting is that we don't always necessarily see that. There's plenty of examples that we see of, of top, top players whose eyes do not seem to be fixed on the ball, whose no, or, eyes seem or their to head be... is like looking at the other side. Right. Absolutely. Right. And, and these are players that have won grand slams, players that have, you know, been number one, um, yet they, they managed to get away with it. So I think, um, so yeah, the, so, so those were, those were a couple of thoughts just in terms of some of the similarities and commonalities between this and the other, um, and, and the other article that, that we read, but what, what were some of the things that came to mind for you? Well, I thought, you know, one of the beginning aspects of the article was this notion that consistent head control, as they put it, like kind of contr- being able to almost like it's almost like quiet head theory <laughs> instead of quiet eye theory. And um, that and balance are really core features of high level performance. And that those two things actually, if you can do those two things well, Technical improvements can be made much faster. I thought that was an interesting observation. Um, they didn't necessarily provide a lot of evidence on that, but it, you know, intuitively that would seem to make sense. Um, and so I think we do see guys like Federer. They do have a quiet head. They do appear. He does appear to be very balanced the majority of the time. 
they had some also photos of Nadal uh, through, you know, swinging through the contact zone and having his head stay in that contact piece. I don't think they necessarily, in this article, emphasize the need to be super fixated on the actual ball, but that the head stayed still was more the prominent feature and that it, that the head was more in the direction or looking at that contact zone. Because um, I think as it noted, it's almost impossible to see that moment of contact between the ball and your strings. It happens so, so quickly. And, and of course, as players, we have this desire to see where the ball is going. Um, but what they were showing in this particular analysis is what that these, a lot of these top players, they're not looking up right after contact. Their head stays in that contact zone for maybe, he didn't have actual numbers on it, but maybe it's like in the golf study, 200 to 300 milliseconds later, you know. And he made a good argument for why you should do this. Because once you've made contact, you can't actually go and fix it after that. So why not just stay with the stroke because it'll actually help the ball quality. You picking your head up, in fact, will not make anything better at that point. So I thought that was kind of an interesting way of, of, of looking at it. Um, but I thought this was interesting, Josh, because... Um, as you said, you know, certain players like an Andy Murray, you watch him, you look at photos of him, and he, he never seems to be at, you know, during the contact phase, really having his head on that zone. It picks it up. So, you know, maybe that's a, uh, one of those instances where we shouldn't copy some pros and we can copy other pros. I don't know. Um, but I think in general, it's a very interesting thing to, to try to be calmer with the head. Because I think if we have a head that's moving around, that is often indicative of some sort of um, pressure or stress. Similar to like with the eyes in, in the golf experiment, um, where those who had been trained on quiet eye perform better under stress. I think those in tennis who could be you know, tracking the ball a little bit better, but keep their head quiet emphasize their balance can also play better under pressure. Um, and I think these can then be some cues on the court when you are feeling some stress is can I, you know, not only can I try to relax my body, but can I come back to maybe a bounce hit type thing? Or I, I like I said, I, I like watching the spin of the ball after it bounces um, and really emphasize this aspect of of the mechanics of what we're doing and um i think we've talked about this before actually maybe on the sean brawley episode he brought up his interview with federer after the 2017 australian open and he asked him i think that simple question how did you do it and the simple answer was that he exclusively focused on the ball and you know whatever that means it means it's but um, he just stayed focused on something very simple that allows you to block everything else out. And then that maybe helps you to relax here. So that was one thing that this article really made me think of is that head control and maintaining your gaze 
in that contact zone is really, really important, not just to the physical piece, but also to the mental, emotional part of the performance. Definitely. And I think as it relates to the mental um, side of the game, we, we often talk about the both the necessity of be spending more time in the present moment and the difficulty of it. It's very easy as tennis players and as athletes and people really to think about things from the past and to focus on those things, maybe wish they were different and to focus on the future as well and think about what if. Um, and, and really what we're doing when we're making contact with the ball and also past that point of contact is, is almost a microcosm of that. Um, because in a certain way, if we, you know, as we're hitting the ball and making contact with the ball and, and even through that point of contact, we want to stay focused on it and we want to really stay present in that moment. If we're, if our head is pulling up and we're, where we can't fight that urge to look to the other side of the court to see where our shot is going, we're, we're essentially jumping towards the future where before the actual shot has completed, we're jumping towards the future we're we're waiting to see what actually happened rather than really following through and, and finishing the shot itself so i think that's another way to think about it as well and i think you know like like you know i i think um when people play next you know the, the next time you're on the court try to notice this try to notice how often are you really able to fix your gaze on the ball you know, I think being aware of that and, you know, and, and then trying to implement some of these tools in your own game is key. But I think it all really starts with awareness, being aware of where you're at in terms of the skill currently. And then once you're aware of it, once you can start to notice what are the moments, is it under pressure? Is it other moments where maybe you use this less and maybe you start, you know, Rather than watching the ball and, and watching it to your point of contact, uh, you're you know maybe your attention is elsewhere. You're looking towards the other side of the court. You know once you're aware of that, then you can pinpoint what are the moments where you want to really try to start implementing this. But it's a it's a process for sure. And I think whenever we're working on our games, whether that be physical or mental, emotional, we want to try to look at this as course a process of improvement and a process of improvement requires the willingness to experiment and experience and that's this is a really easy thing to do to to try and many tennis i as i i think i've said in a lot of different things we've asked you to try is a great place to do it because the ball isn't moving so fast tennis is not very complicated um and you can begin there. You can see the spin of the ball. You can easily do balance hit. You can easily uh, keep your head in the contact zone. Keep it there a little bit longer. See what you notice. Um, one of the things that um, I like to do is is similar to putting in golf. So you know when a when a golfer is looking at a putt, what are they doing? They're trying to figure out the line from the ball to the hole. And of course, the you know the different slopes and undulations of the green may affect that, right? So they're basically drawing a path. We can do the same in tennis, actually. Even though we're more dynamic, you can be looking at, let's say you're doing mini tennis and you've just kind of moved a little bit to your right and you'd like to hit the ball down the middle. Well, then just in your mind, draw a line from your racket where that impact point where you think it's going to be to the middle of the court. And then you just try to hit the ball along that line. It's very similar to putting, right? 
and that can be also be practiced there. So we're using, um, and that can also help you fixate more, want to be fixated more on that contact zone because you know you want to, in essence, hit the ball along your line, hit it along your path there. Um, so I think there, a lot of this is just experiment, experience, and reflect on how it feels and, and, and try to make it work for you. Whatever phrases are good for you in terms of reminders of watch the ball, impact point. You know, I have one um, guy I work with, he, he liked to use the phrase attack the contact point. Like I like that. That's like all right. Now we're we're not going to be uh, passive, right? We're going to be attacking that ball. So for those people who maybe decelerate through uh, shots, um, that might be a good thing to do, or accelerate through the contact, something like that. So you can start designing your own self-talk cues to get you through this. But I think this is a really this is really really good and interesting information that can help all everybody's listening to improve their ball quality, maybe even improve their ability to make technical adjustments or improvements in their game simply by learning how to keep their heads quiet, keep their eyes quiet, um, and, and then get even better at that. Who knows what else that could lead to in, in your game. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when you were bringing up the point of the line of your shot or sort of the arc of the shot that, that you want, I think visualization can have a, an important role there. And I think um, you can visualize what you want that serve return to look like, what you want your serve to look like, or really any shot. But I think an important piece of that visualization, and we talk about how when we visualize, we want to be including as you know different details to really make it feel more vivid and realistic um, and really put yourself in that moment. And we can do that through our senses, do that through our emotions. Um, and the ball has an important role to play there. So can you really visualize that ball coming towards you and visualize yourself tracking that ball before, during, and after that point of contact? And, and I think, you know, by doing that and by not just doing it once, which I think sometimes people think of when it comes to visualization, but really practicing it and getting those repetitions in and viewing it as mental rehearsal by getting that rehearsal in over and over again, uh, it makes it a lot easier to actually to, to do the action the way that you want to um, when when it's actually time to do it in 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 a match and practice but i think there's definitely a role to be played at home i mean people can you know close their eyes imagine themselves you know imagine a ball is coming towards their forehand um and the ball bounces and you're watching it you're tracking it and you really try to um yeah keep your head fixed your eyes fixed on that point of contact and that's something again you can practice from your couch um but but also from the practice court and also during a match. So I think there is a progression that can take place here as well. Not that there necessarily needs to, but I think there's different ways that this can be practiced so that by the, you know, so that you're just getting more repetitions in and more practice of the same sort of action, because it's sometimes, you know, I, I don't think that it's the norm. I feel like most people are pulling their head up. Most people are not necessarily watching the ball. You know, I think the, when a coach says, watch the ball, it almost sounds too cliche 
you know, so I think instead of thinking it that way and thinking of it that way, thinking of it as tracking the ball or thinking of it as, you know, really trying to watch it or keep your head fixed, your eyes fixed through that point of contact can, can maybe be a better cue or, you know, something, a better way for a coach to, you know, to tell a student, but also for somebody to tell themselves, um, to give themselves that instruction for how they, um, yeah, how they navigate that moment. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Great info, Josh. And, you know, if, if people are interested more in quiet eye theory, just in general, there are, there are lots of free resources on, on the internet on this. There are videos you can find on YouTube. I think you found a couple, Josh. Um, and it does sound so basic. You're right. Watch the ball sounds so cliche that nobody does it. Um, and so it might be a matter of you experimenting with your own words that actually get you to keep your head still, to be more balanced, to, to allow you to feel like a little bit more in control. When our heads are sort of flying out, we're a little bit out of control. We're we're probably a little jittery and get a little too anxious about things. And I I know that when I pull my head out, Josh, ninety five percent of the time it's going to be a mistake, you know, or I leave it short and because uh, it mostly happens on my forehand, I'll leave it more to to the right, uh, more likely to hit it wide in the net or it lands somewhere on the ad side short. Um, nothing really good ever comes out of that particular by me raising my head. So I know that that's something I have to work on and really be paying attention to. And I'm sure if everybody examined their own game and, and thought about this some more, they would probably notice that more often than not, when they pull their head up, there's a mistake or, or, or the quality of the ball is, is not what you would expect. Definitely. Definitely. And I think that's a, a great first step for people to start really trying to notice and maybe even being intentional with playing around with it, like similar to what we talked about with uh, Jeff Greenwald in terms of during practice, being able to almost like a dial like zero through 10 um, experiment with yourself playing really tight and experiment with yourself playing really loose and then finding in between. Um, can you experiment with yourself really watching the ball? And, and really try to watch it through that point of contact and then, you know, see what happens when you don't and try to watch, you know, try to hit the ball with, you know, looking at the other side of the court and see what happens and then notice, okay, what do I tend to do? And then can I bring that awareness to, to, um, to making changes and to starting to implement it, you know, with, with hopefully with each shot that we hit. Yeah. So very good. I think this was a, a, a nice topic. For us to, to discuss, you know, it really comes more from the world of uh, motor learning and kinesiology, but obviously it has an impact on a player's mental and emotional performance and performance under pressure. So uh, I think it's a great conversation. Um, and that is it for today. So thank you all for listening. For more on today's episode, please check out the show notes. If you have any feedback or questions about Quiet Eye or anything else, Feel free to email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. If you get an opportunity, please rate and review the podcast so others can find it. Uh, additionally, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube, so you can be notified of new episodes. You can also check us out on Instagram. If you would like to support the podcast, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com 
slash Tennis IQ podcast slash membership, where you can learn about the benefits of being part of the Tennis IQ podcast community. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon in our next episode.